Welcome to Strategy Talk, where the editors of Strategy Page discuss current events with a splash of history. I'm Dan Masterson, host of Strategy Talk. With me today is the editor of Strategy Page, well-known military author and game designer, Jim Dunnigan. Also joining us is the associate editor of Strategy Page, columnist and author, Austin Bay. Welcome, Austin and Jim. Thought it was time to circle back to uh, China. What has been happening there recently, Jim? Well, they have said that they're uh, not going to do anything aggressive. Well, they've actually ordered their their personnel uh, not to act aggressively. And that's usually a sign that uh, they're going to basically wait until the American election is over. Um, the On a larger you know, uh, canvas... Uh, China is still faced with the same problems. They cannot afford a war. They can afford a war less than anybody else. Uh, they are in a situation somewhat similar to Japan in 1940 or 41. Uh, they import almost all their oil. Uh, they've been stockpiling it mainly because of, you know, uh, Iran has been eager to unload as much as they can. And of course, they had the, uh, the COVID-19 recession which slowed their economy down, but that's coming back up. But they, uh, you know, the the pollution is now building up in the cities again, which is one uh, irrefutable way to uh, calculate how their economy is doing. The air was actually clear for a while, and so that was confirmation that, yes, the, the they've shut down a large portions of their economy because of the uh, virus. Um, they uh, They still have the problem in that, the government is a communist police state. Uh, the economy is a market economy. In other words, there's, a, there's still corruption. There's still interference by uh, state officials, uh, which, is, which is very unpopular with the majority of, of Chinese. Um, the government is very much afraid of what this new middle class might do. For one thing, there's so many of them. China never had a middle class like this before. I mean, they had something of a middle class, but these were basically uh, non, how should I put it, non-commercial. They had merchants and what have you, but it was not a large class. These were wealthy merchants. You know, the wealth was concentrating at the top. But in the last 20, 30 years, they develop a real middle class. People who have, they own their own apartment or home, usually an apartment. They own a car. They own things. They have education. They have skills, marketable skills. Uh, the Chinese government, as well as Chinese commercial firms, compete to hire these people. Uh, one, one very smart thing that Chinese have done is that they have taken more and more of the weapons development away from uh, state-owned companies and basically allowed competition. Uh, now, a lot of what, what this means is a lot of Chinese weapons developers will develop a weapon mainly for export because they haven't got any assurance of sales to the Chinese military. But, but if the weapon proves itself, bingo, uh, you know, the military will, you know, start purchasing this proven system. A lot of times it doesn't work. But again, these are commercial firms uh, and the government understands that they're not going to develop a lot of these freebie, you know, systems, as it were, uh, without government assistance, uh, if uh, if they don't sell them, they don't export them. China is dependent on exports in many vital industries. They are still dependent on imports 
for many critical elements, especially some electronics and food. Now, here's where the great vulnerability is. If there's a war, their ports are not functioning anymore. I mean, you know, forget about, you know, the Americans or Japanese or South Koreans mining those ports. Um, there's also the fact that the insurance companies will not insure a lot of ships. Now, China has a large merchant fleet, but they're going to be free, you know, <laughs> uh, prize, as it were, out on the open seas. Because if there's a war, they're going to be hunted down, uh, you know, forced to surrender. And whatever country gets them, you know, has a new ship, uh, you know, bulk, uh, cargo, uh, tanker, you name it. So they're crippled. Um, so they, like the Japanese in 1941, have to win a war fast. Now, here's another big variable. Uh, if you war game this out, you're faced with one major question mark. How well will everybody's weapon systems work? Now, one characteristic of Chinese weapon systems they look great. They, they test pretty good as far as we can tell. Uh, they're, they're putting their pilots into the air to, to basically get the air time that, that uh, creates a, a competent pilot, something the Russians could never do during the communist period, or actually even since, because letting the pilots fly their planes one or 200 hours a year is very expensive. But the Chinese realize that, and they're starting to do it. But they still have, you know, an incredibly small air force compared to, well, even South Korea and, and Japan, which are the other two military superpowers uh, in East Asia. I mean, you put the United States forces deployed in, um, in the West Pacific, along with South Korea and Japan, China is way outnumbered. Now, the Chinese do this. One thing they inherited from the Soviets was a, a thing called correlation of forces. Um, and this is something that's that's uh, actually a key to any war game. They do use some modern war games. They've been doing it since mm, the 70s. When I was running a war games company, I visited by the FBI who were looking into people who were exporting uh, illegal weapons uh, to China. And so I said, well, what are you doing here? He says, well, your war games are considered, you know, weapons grade, you know, intellectual property. I said, well, nobody ever told me. So, all right, sure, go look at our list. Now, I don't know if they ever found people they were looking for, but even then, that, that was probably Andy Marshall and, 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 and company <laughs> who were pointing out that, you know, if the people in the uh, Department of Defense thought our games were so e effective, what do you think the Chinese will think? Uh, or the Russians, while well, the Russians really would admit it, but the Chinese were eager for any Western technology. And so some of the first Western technology they got were games I designed, uh, dubious distinction. Now, fast forward almost 40 years later, they have the second largest economy in the world, and they're no longer a continental power. Continental power is a, is a country uh, that doesn't depend upon imports and exports by sea. In other words, they either have everything they need within their borders or they have, you know, neighbors, uh, you know, with land borders uh, who can uh, provide what they need or get it be invaded and occupied and be forced to give up what the what the continental power requires. A classic example of that was Germany. Germany was a continental power and England was a maritime power. And in the end, uh, Britain won in part because. They control the seas. Uh, so that still applies. You know, it just goes to show you what goes around comes around. Uh, this goes back thousands of years. I mean, the ancient history uh, stories of wars and what have you are, are, are uh, rife 
with examples of maritime control equals a, 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 a fantastic weapon. Now, the problem with China is they do not know how effective their modern forces would be in trying to uh, break or reduce the American or the Western, the American alliance. Again, we're including South Korea and, uh, and Japan. Uh, <clears throat> the, uh, the, the enemy's were ability to basically cut off China from the rest of the world uh, by sea. Uh, China still has land links, but they cannot provide the kind of the, the, the degree of exports that, that China requires uh, to keep its economy going. Now, this, these things we know. If there is more unemployment in China, the government is blamed. The government is in trouble. They've tried to play the nationalist card. That's one reason why they, they recently ordered their forces, do not fire first. You know, you've got to take the first shot. Because it's got to look like China's the victim. This is something Japan played at the end of the war, even though all through the war, they were the ones getting the first shot and if they could. But China has learned, learns from the past, and they realize that, uh, you know, not making the first, uh, you know, move is not a, uh, is mainly a domestic political issue. Because they have to convince the Chinese people who will be unemployed, Going hungry, seeing their 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 middle class status melting away, as long as China cannot trade. Now, where do you go from there? Uh, it's hard to say. But if China's weapons somehow work out, and you only find this sort of thing out when there's actually a war, uh, we've reported, you know, uh, again and again, American weapons and other countries' weapons being tried out in combat. Uh, America's had more combat experience in the last 20, 30 years than any other country. Um, the the Russians got involved in Syria mainly to test their weapons. They found a lot of errors. They found a lot of weapon systems they thought were great, and they turned out to be turkeys. Now, the Russians, to their credit, they admitted a lot of it eventually. They made fixes. They've, they've really done more updating of their weapon systems, you know, in the last 10 years than they had any time, you know, even during the uh, the Soviet period, where it was a, a you know a a crime against the state to badmouth you know Russian weapons. But we found out towards the end of the war, when uh, when I finally convinced the uh, the CIA to go and in, uh, to interview a lot of these uh, these immigrants, uh, Russian immigrants, that came in in the 1980s because of the uh, the deal, you know, to let Russian Jews. Well, a lot of those Russian Jews weren't Jews. They just bribed their way. You know, to get the right papers to to come to Brighton Beach and do whatever they could do. But what they what these people were, all of them had been in the military. Even if they hadn't been in high positions, they could see, they could hear, they could observe. And man, it was a uh, I got a couple of pats on the back for that because they 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 got an enormous amount of practical information on what the Russians could do and what they couldn't do. And in part, I did this to prove my point. In, in, in the games we were doing, contemporary games, I says, you cannot assume the Russians will do what they think they can do. You cannot even assume that they will do what are, you know, experts. Uh, like Andy, well, Andy Marshall was well aware of his, uh, his inability to accurately, you know, predict, uh, you know, or calculate exactly what the enemy could do in the first stage of the war. The opening stages of any war, especially in modern time where there's a lot of new technology, 
you know, in the past you had weapons that have been used, you know, for centuries. And so you, you're pretty much knew what a spear could do, what a sword could do. It's uh, there was no technology change to worry about, but now it's almost all about technology change. It's also about how well you train your troops. Uh, China, for example, uh, the, the you know, uh, issues that affect the military as a whole, they do not classify discussions. They have their periodicals. This is something even the Russians did. And one thing they're complaining about is 30 years of trying to build up an NCO Corps have not worked. They still have got, you know, it, it, well, without putting too fine a point on it, second-rate NCOs. Now, as anybody, any military historian or, or veteran in the, in the West knows, the NCOs, the quality of your NCOs is basically the quality of your force. You know, you can have the greatest officers in the world. You can have the greatest troops in the world. But it's the, the NCOs, the sergeants, the chief petty officers, and what have you. They are the, they are the glue that holds it all together and makes it work. Uh, and the West realized that a long time ago. Uh, but the Russians and the Chinese, uh, following the Russian example, got rid of the NCOs because they noted during the Russian and to the Chinese revolution, well, especially the Russian revolution, it was these NCOs who were basically the most effective revolutionaries. <laughs> you know, these guys were skilled. They were practical. They had the support of the troops. You know, they weren't some distant figure, you know, like a lot of the officers were. These were guys that you could identify with. A lot of them were basically, you know, people who were drafted. Uh, in those days, you drafted uh, by lot, uh, pretty much, or, or depending on how many bribes you could pay, uh, for 20 years. And so these guys, they made the most of it. And so a guy who was 15, you know, a 10, 15 years veteran, who was a sergeant in the Russian army, this is a capable guy. Uh, and the Russians threw that all away. And it killed him, so to speak, literally, in World War II. Now, the Chinese saw that. They tried to fix it, but they haven't been able to. They're having a similar problem with their naval uh, petty officers. They've been expanding the Navy uh, rapidly in the last 10 years, and that simply is not enough time to select the, the more competent people and to basically give them the experience to become very uh, efficient uh, chief petty officers. I picked up, you know, rumored, as it were, uh, from people observing the, uh, the Chinese who make port calls. Uh, they did a lot of this in the last five, six years as they got, uh, you know, long distance, you know, shipping and they could send out task forces. And they would say, generally uh, speaking, they, they would send the, uh, their contribution to the Somali anti-piracy task force when their three-month tour was up. They would go off to Europe or South America, whatever, and basically show the flag. And, but, but, but mainly give the, the sailors, the, 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 the crews, a practical experience in making long voyages, staying alive, as it were, on the open seas, which is no easy thing to do. But we do not know how much that cumulative uh, rush to accumulate experience, which America has, you know, most Western navies have, especially the American Navy, mainly not because of incompetent things, you know, the Pentagon might be doing, you know, the, the, the naval uh, senior leadership, but simply because those ships staying at, at sea for six months you know, or more at a time, uh, that's the kind of training you cannot get any other way. Uh, they know what to do. A storm, you know, a failure at sea, equipment failure. They get right to it. They know what to do and they fix it. Uh, the Chinese are going for a quick victory, but even that is questionable. For example, the missiles they recently fired made a big stink. Some of them were the C uh, DF-21D. That's their their anti-carrier ballistic missile. Now that has never been tested. 
as far as we know. Well, in the open sea, and this is apparently the first time, they test these things. They test most of their ballistic missiles. The country's so big, they fire them from one end of the country to the other. And that basically hides, you know, it makes it more difficult for foreign countries to monitor what's going on. But they fired a 4,000-kilometer range, an intermediate-range ballistic missile, and uh, which would be in the Guam or something like that, or Okinawa. Um, and uh, this DF-21, which would be fired... Uh, at any carrier test force trying to enter the uh, South China Sea or get involved. Now, again, we don't know. As far as we know, they might have had it set up, all right, to aim for this this patch of water. Uh, nobody knows what patch of water, and let's see if it hits. And so they can report They can report back, you know, they, they have telemetry coming out of the, the warhead, uh, encrypted telemetry. For all I know, we, we can catch that and decrypt it. I don't know. That, that sort of thing keeps secret. Um, but a, a a a more realistic test would be to put a uh, you know a basically a a, a a large tanker or a large ship headed for the scrapyard and have what we call a sinkex and put it out there in the open sea. Maybe keep the engine going under robotic control so it's got some speed like a carrier would be, uh, and then fire the DF twenty one. Now that's an expensive test, uh, but it's the acid test. If they could pass that, you know we would see that. And if, boy, if that ballistic missile came in and sank that old, you know, that 30-year-old, uh, you know, retired carrier, uh, bulk carrier or tanker, whoops, we got a problem. But we don't know. The Chinese don't know. And that's the problem in any opening stages of a war. But behind that, you've got to look at what we call in war games victory conditions. Their victory conditions are to keep, stay in power. I mean, that's something the Chinese Communist Party has made, has re reinforced in the last five, five, ten years, uh, and we reported about it in strategy page. They've made, they've, they've reinforced the fact that the armed forces uh, do not pledge loyalty to China, but to the Chinese Communist Party. And they've also reorganized the uh, chain of command uh, so it flows, you know, more so to the. Uh, to the uh, to the Communist Party than to any you know there's no civilian authority in China uh, that you can get away with that as long as the economy is going great people are prosperous and so on but the coronavirus uh, you know outbreak uh, and uh, you know the recession are triggered uh, as well as the pushback China's getting in many other places. That means the the Z government that he's now made himself, uh, you know, president for life, which wasn't that way for about twenty years. Um, uh, he's under pressure because it's all on him. You know, when things were going swell, he could take credit. It's me, Chairman Z. Uh, but now, when things are going bad, he doesn't realize. You know, even in a police state, people think, "Hmm, he's screwing up." If we get rid of him, maybe things will get better. Now, people think that, and they can pick it up in the chatter on the Internet. Um, and uh, that makes they, that, that basically gives Xi, the senior leadership, pause on making doing anything aggressive. They feel, and this is an old Chinese you know, military strategy, that it's, it's more prudent, safer, and more assured if you are the superior power, which China always has been for over a thousand, couple thousand years, once it unified, uh, you will eventually prevail without risk, you know, to the dynasty. Because even throughout Chinese history, 
if an emperor lost too many big battles, got defeated by, you know, too many, you know, barbarian, stupid barbarians, as they would usually be described, he was considered, you know, uh, not worthy of the mandate of heaven, as they call, you know, that, that which is bestowed on the head of state, whoever's ruling. Uh, and she is faced with the classic mandate of heaven, you know, security situation. Can he hold on to it? And so if you're going to game out China at war, you have to take that into account. He cannot pull the trigger. There's far more uh, difficulty in China pulling the trigger than the West. And the West, of course, uh, is not looking for a war, but they're also pushing back. And the, the, what you have to do is come up with ways to push back without opening fire. And the Chinese are coming to realize that. One reason they're waiting for the, the election is because if they get four more years of Trump, they realize this guy is used to playing our game. Uh, the art of the, whatever, the deal, whatever he calls it. But Trump has that ability. He is not a politician in Washington. He's a deal maker, a negotiator, somebody who gets it done. Um, and the, the, the professional politicians hate that. And among the professional politicians who hate that are a lot of the Chinese politicians. Um, so they're basically, you know, uh, treading water. Uh, after November, if there's, a, if there's a, if a new government in the United States, uh, then it's a whole new situation. New victory conditions, uh, new this, new that. Uh, it'll change things one way or the other, especially on the military front. Austin, how do you see things going? Well, it, look, Jim gave a, a, a great <clears throat> uh, laydown of some of the, the, the key elements and the point he made about the uh, military being a, uh, the Army, the P, uh, People's Liberation Army. The People's Liberation Army Navy, even though now they're calling it the Chinese Navy, they're a party army. They're not. They're not a national country army. They're a, a, a part of the party's enforcement apparatus, and that's that's a, a key to looking at one of the scenarios that uh, I had sketched out uh, in my my column this week, uh, which is China versus China. And that's that's what Jim was getting at too when he was talking about the mandate the, the mandate of heaven uh, uh, to rule, and that's also part of what Jim was talking about when he says there's China now has an emerged middle class that has interests that run counter to the authoritarian uh, approach you get out of the Chinese Communist Party in Beijing. Uh, something that Jim didn't touch on, but we have in, in other uh, strategy talks and certainly uh, in, in, in print, is that China still is really about six, depending on how you, you, you cut it up, six different Chinese countries, uh, four, six, seven. Uh, and the chief example of this that I, uh, I use when I have, have lectured about it just can Look at southern China, Guangdong, Canton. That still has the highest provincial and regional GDP uh, within China. And the southerners, the southern dialect, Cantonese, Guangdongese, is unintelligible with northern 
quote unquote uh, Mandarin, even though they can all read the, the same uh, the, uh, the, the same text. Uh, you, you, the, the dialects are, are dramatically uh, dramatically different. Uh, it's yeah, that's even among the the predominant ethnic group in China, which is uh, Han Chinese. So Jim touched on all those social historical uh, components. But, but Jim, there's one thing I'm going to disagree with, and I'm I'm disagreeing with it though in a in a what I will call a Chinese strategic context. You said don't fire the first shot. They've already fired the first shot, Dan, in the South China Sea, and it's been shots and buckets of concrete with those seven manufactured fabricated islands. They actually have more than that, but the the uh, fabricated islands built on sea features. And by the way, they're illegal under the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. Uh, they, they're, they're, they're illegal <laughs> under, uh, I'm gonna take a chance on this, Jim, about 2,500 years of maritime understandings <laughs> among uh, among uh, nations that uh, with uh, merchant fleets and even naval naval fleet uh, navies uh, that's an invasion a slow invasion that they really began in the early 1990s um, some of this we've covered in strategy talk I lay it I lay a lot of it out in about a page and a half in the introduction of the Dragon Revives uh, chapter of Cocktails from Hell, too. It's just they uh, began by uh, just putting up, quote unquote, weather reporting stations on uh, sea features or uh, concrete on top of a, a, a of a reef. And they were doing it for everyone's benefit. Of course, now you see what they've created are islands with at least three of them have uh, airfields uh, capable of, of handling high-performance aircraft. Maybe uh, all of them have uh, some type of, of air base on them. And even though China said they would not militarize them, as we've discussed in the past, they've uh, emplaced anti-ship missiles, uh, uh, surface-to-air missiles uh, on the on the island. So they've got. If you think of them, well, they're bastions. Is really what the uh, what they are. They're not immobile aircraft carriers. They're bastions with uh, weapons that are designed. And Jim pointed this out in a strategy talk we had a couple of years ago. To get if someone moves in there on the surface to uh, get them in a in a missile crossfire. And also because of the bases that uh, they're uh, they are able to extend their air cover away from uh, mainland China, so I say they've made the first shot, and they've been successful at it because they've taken territory. It's an imperialist, uh, I mean, an imperialist move, uh, classic Chinese imperialism because they did it slowly. They largely did it for the most part with uh, very little loss of life. There has been loss of life. Uh, there's, and I, well, there's loss of life too, because they, there were a couple of uh, attacks they made in the Paracels, which is a, in the northern part of the South China Sea, where they drove the Vietnamese off of islands that are, <laughs> have arguably been Vietnamese at least for 500 years. But then again, China has 
uh, the naval superiority and air superiority, certainly in that in that region of the Vietnamese, and the Vietnamese weren't able to uh, respond. Uh, I mentioned Vietnam because the Vietnamese have been working since about that time very steadily to try to become uh, at least a strategic ally of the United States. They need a big boy to stand up to the local regional bully, China. So there's a first shot, except it was against Vietnam. It fit in with the way the Chinese want to frame this struggle, and that is bilaterally. They want to be able to just take on Vietnam. They want to be able to just take on the Philippines. They want to go one-on-one with Taiwan. They want to go one-on-one with Japan. Uh, and they, and they, want to, they do it not simply militarily, economically and uh, uh, culturally. Uh, understand, too, and this is something else we've talked about, that their Coast Guard and their fishing fleets, they have what they've, they've called their sea militia. Uh, it's their their fishermen move in and then the Coast Guard comes and protects them. This fits in what they call their cabbage strategy, all these little leaves of of cabbage around whatever their goal is, and then overfly it with long range uh, reconnaissance uh, aircraft. Uh, So, and then the the, the boats, the fishing boats, steel fish, among other things, but they establish a presence in an area. And the next thing you know, here comes another barge fleet building another sea feature. Uh, Let me back up just for a second. They've had pushback on this assault. 2016, the uh, arbitration court in The Hague, in, uh, in Holland, ruled on a case that the Philippines, I think the Philippines actually filed it in 2013, and it dealt with resource theft as well as uh, intrusion on territorial waters. And specifically, the big point is this area is in our exclusive economic zone, EEZ. Uh, That goes beyond the uh, 12-mile water that goes out, well, in a place like the South China Sea, it's it's very it's it's almost a puzzle because you've got uh, colliding or inter- intersecting EEZ claims, but they're pretty well worked uh, worked out. You know, there's some debate that goes on between Malaysia and the Philippines and Brunei and uh, Cambodia, Vietnam, and the like, but it's, it's not a Chinese EEZ except that China claims that it is. And they have uh, legal rights all the way down. This is their so-called nine-dash line that uh, they promote diplomatically and uh, it's part of their narrative uh, narrative warfare. It's all, it's all manufactured and made up as, as fabricated as the islands. But to get back to that case, the Philippines presented it and that uh, the arbitration ruling, and it was set up under the uh, Convention on the Law of the Sea, which China signed. Of course, China signed the Sino-British <laughs> agreement uh, about Hong Kong, and they just totally broke that. Uh, about 98% of what the Philippines had, had claimed, the court recognized it, including the resource theft as well as the illegal intrusion 
on uh, Filipino uh, EEZ. Now that's pushback. What did China do? <laughs> and, the, and the way they, again, the they way they prefer to fight in the South China Sea, it's us, the local power, the regional power, the bully versus the smaller power. They just ignored it. Well, here's Jim, uh, Jim was talking about what the Trump administration does. The pushback, we, the United States really uh, stepped back in, on this. And even though working with the Philippines and the other Association of Southeast Asian Nations, ASEAN as it's called, understand that that's, that's not an alliance. It's got some elements of an alliance, but you have Cambodia in it, that in Cambodia in some ways it behaves like a wholly owned subsidiary of China, but that's uh, again a, a, another another story. Uh, not so with uh, Malaysia or Vietnam or the or the or the Philippines or Indonesia on that, or Singapore, especially Singapore. Uh, the uh, U.S. position was we're for freedom of navigation. And there's some pushback there because China was going around. This was, this was the shtick. If you flew uh, over or near these manufactured islands, you had to. You were entering Chinese sovereign airspace. Or if you were sailing uh, within, or you're passing within 12 miles of them, as if they were, you know, the uh, sovereign Chinese territory, which they're not by any measure. You had to have permission, and the U.S. pushed back. And on that point, when they first started trying to do it, and that that precedes twenty uh, precedes twenty sixteen, was we're just going to sail by there, and we'd have the Navy conduct what's called a FONOP, freedom of uh, navigation uh, operations, which it's military, but it's it's diplomatic uh, warfare uh, as as well. And, and just sail through there, and, and you know, what are you going to do? China a couple of times has had uh, uh, warships and Coast Guard come very close to American destroyers when they were conducting a, 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 a FONOP. So that's, <clears throat> that's not the first shot, but a ramming incident uh, a ramming incident is a type of shot. Uh, uh, we know that. So the pushback really on the, the Filipino case, I want to, as far as the U.S. is concerned, it's, it starts with the Trump administration. You see some actions taken in 2018, but now, look, uh, last week and earlier this week with, uh, that we were re, uh, recording this, we've, the State Department's sanctioned that big uh, Chinese uh, construction uh, uh, company, Chinese Communications Construction Corporation, it's, I'm, I'm doing that off the top of my head, sanctioned it, uh, it because that's been re that outfit has been responsible for a lot of the uh, island building in the South China Sea. And it has uh, senior officers, and suppliers that can be uh, not not uh, put out of business by the United States, but there are ways we can crimp their capability 
uh, to build, to operate, not just in the South China Sea, but everywhere uh, in the world. That's a money shot by the United States. It should have happened in 2016, really, or 2017, but there was still some attempt. And that, that's me looking, looking back. Uh, it, it, that's, that's me making a statement in hindsight, Dan. I realize that. But that Hague ruling and China's refusal to acknowledge it and essentially say, we're tough, we're just going to stand pat, uh, was a signal about the way China is, has fought this slow war that's already going on in the South China Sea. Now we're going to hold it. The thing is, as Jim laid out darn well, the uh, situation, well, sketch, sketch the situation, the, mil the mil military situation in there. I'm coming now back with some of the diplomatic, political, economic tussling that's going on. Uh, it, it's a war already, Dan, and it depends on what you want to call a, sh uh, call a shot. Now, I want to make a comment about that uh, DF-21D uh, anti-carrier ballistic missile. And then, uh, Jim, what's, there's an updated version, uh, DF-26 or something like that. Well, the 26 is just an IRBM. Okay. The only guided right. one is the DF-21, which okay. has gone through right. several upgrades, but it's never been shown to actually work. All right. See, the thing is, is that they could test it in the way that Jim has uh, said. But, you know, that's not really the acid test. The acid test is firing it at something that's not only maneuvering, maneuvering just, you know, uh, uh, with, but has uh, anti-missile missile capabilities as well, detection and, uh, uh, and uh, response. In other words... Uh, <laughs> they were going to have to, if they're, if they're going to fire that thing, they're going to be uh, coming up against uh, U.S. Navy BMD, ballistic missile defense uh, uh, warships with a uh, SM-3 standard missile 3 uh, carrying it. And also all kinds of other little things were in this the, the point, they're not little things, uh, weapons to take down not just sea skimming missiles, but in ballistic missiles. The SM-3 is uh, is is part of the missile defense umbrella, and for uh, Guam, Hawaii, Japan, uh, it's uh, it, it, there. They'd have to do that to convince me that they've really got a carrier. Killer. Yeah. Now, is that is that a normal warhead or is it a nuclear warhead on that it's maneuverable isn't it jim no it's nuclear yeah, it's, a, it's a conventional warhead a conventional warhead okay yeah, yeah. But, a, but a warhead hypersonic you know war uh, ballistic missile incoming warhead would do enormous damage to a carrier that there's no dispute about well, right right but actually it hits I, it, it hits it might sink that's that's yeah. That, that, that's that, that's true. It's, Again, nobody's saying. ever nobody's ever tested it, but yeah. uh, now, that's got to worry the Chinese more than us. Jim, and it's not a threat. I'm just telling you though that there are things you can do to it. Plus, when they shoot it, watch what happens when you get the offensive, the counteroffensive response from the United States and uh, Japan, South Korea, uh, whoever else is in the region. 
to hit Chinese missile launch uh, sites along the coast. And as Jim pointed out, the, oh, <clears throat> why this becomes unlikely is the Chinese have to break out and they're going to be fighting minefields. If they, they want to mine the South China Sea, how are they going to break through? It's not going to be the first island chain that they talk about. It's going to be the break out of their own coastline because of all the minefields running all the way from Shanghai to Hainan Island. It's, uh, there's, there's, they've got a lot of problems if it really becomes a shooting like this. Now, Jim, isn't it more likely that the opening shots would be against maybe a Filipino patrol boat or a frigate? Well, uh, yeah, because that's lower risk, but there's still risk. Uh, a Chinese emperor, especially one in a precarious position like Xi, uh, is very averse to risk because in their, how should I put it, they have a different view of risk than in the West. Uh, they see risk as not, I mean, we have a, a thing called risk management, which have turned into a very powerful management tool. Uh China doesn't really believe in it that much. They say risk should be avoided, not managed. Uh, and that's just, the, that's just the cultural mindset thing. Uh, so they don't want to get into a situation where things might get out of control. I mean, control for a, a, a government, you know, a police state is paramount, is obviously far more important than in, say, the United States or any Western country where there's often a lot of chaos. Uh, but, you know, that's part of the, uh, you know, that's part of a democracy. Uh, it's not part of a, of a communist police state. Um, and they especially want to avoid this if there are foreigners involved. Now, they have tried to, to buy uh, the Philippines, literally, and that hasn't worked out too well. Uh, the opinions uh, polls, you know, keep coming out that the Filipinos trust Americans more than they trust Chinese. Well, no surprise, given the history of the Philippines and China uh, and especially Japan. And a lot of Filipinos see J J China as just another Japan. Um, and uh, and they really want no part of it. They'll take the money, but they realize that the Chinese never deliver on what they say they will. Uh, there's always strings attached that they, they didn't know about. Uh, China is wearing out its welcome that it once had in uh, in the Philippines. Now, uh, China would hope to neutralize uh, active participation by by the Philippines, but the Philippines really has no armed forces that can you know do any real harm uh, to China. Uh, the Philippines has improved its uh, its air and uh, and sea patrol capabilities with some new ships and new aircraft, and China complained. <laughs> when some of those ships and aircraft uh, got too close to their their seven you know islands, as it were, but all's fair. Um, and uh, China also is upset that their aggressiveness, their activities in the South China Sea, have played a major role in getting a lot of former enemies to unite against them. I mean, South Korea and Japan are much closer allied than they ever have been in the past. Now, they are still fundamental, you know, uh, cultural hostilities, especially uh, by South uh, by Koreans against Japanese. But they realize that, you know, it's us, it's our survival that's at risk here. Uh, so that they've been putting aside a lot of those ancient, not, not, well, yeah, ancient animosities. They're not that it's, ancient. That's the thing. I didn't. Well, yeah, yeah, but I, I, I hesitate <laughs> on that because actually they do go back a ways, but that's another story. Well, that's uh, true. But the most, the bitterest memories are very recent. 
uh, and they're the ones that count the most. The um, uh, the the Chinese do act like you know a a variation on the on the uh, on the Japanese. Japanese are very racist. Uh, they believe there is the the, the you know the uh, the Nippon race, as it were. Uh, they were above everyone else. Uh, they could be polite to these barbarians, and they encountered a lot of Chinese in that. They respected Chinese culture, but they considered the current you know crop of Chinese leaders to be a bunch of buffoons and barbarians. This is during World War II, uh, and since then that really hasn't changed. Um, now. Fortunately for China, the uh, the Japanese are not reproducing and they're slowly fading away. Of course, the Chinese are doing the same thing with a lot of prosperity. But what's important is the image that China has created uh, for all of its neighbors. And basically, all of its neighbors hate them or fear them. It includes Russia, because Russia knows that China has claims on a lot of uh, Russian Far Eastern territory, you know, Vladivostok and all that, uh, which they purposely did not renounce in the late 1940s and 1950s when the Russians asked them to. They just politely said, oh, oh, well, uh, we're not, we don't want to deal with that right now, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, they evaded it. Uh, and they have never renounced it. There have been quiet, uh, you know, discussions about, well, uh, what are we going to do about this? And the Chinese say, well, we haven't decided yet. In other words, they haven't set a date for the invasion. Uh, the... Um, Chinese, of course, aren't going to invade, you know, the Russian Far East because both countries have nuclear weapons. Uh, and even though China has adverse any open warfare, they believe that they can basically uh, do a leverage buyout of Eastern Russia by economically. They have a lot of Chinese going in there as businessmen. There are a lot of the exports uh, into Eastern, uh, uh, Eastern, Far Eastern Russia gets more of its, uh, its, its manufactured goods from China than it does from the rest of Russia. Uh, and the Russians are well aware of this, that bit by bit, uh, China will basically, you know, control the uh, Russian Far East by population and by uh, economic links. Uh, and that's the way the Russians, uh, the Chinese roll. They're slow rollers. And it's worked for them in the past, and they feel, they still feel, that it'll work for them in the future. Well, and, and they've thought through this, too, because of the, all their uh, actions in the Arctic. They're already portraying themselves as an Arctic power that got stymied, that they wanted to. Uh, in fact, is that Chinese construction company that I was that's now been sanctioned by the uh, S State Department was, if I correct on this, was involved in uh, a proposal to build an airbase in northern northern Greenland, and that got shot down by the Trump administration. Of course, it was all muddied up in the way that it was reported by most of the uh, mainstream media. But it was uh, an attempt by China to use. Uh, a, a, subtly, it was subtle, the way they set it up, to uh, use their dip diplomatic and uh, economic uh, power to gain a foothold in the Arctic. And you would see that come into play, say, 20, 30, 40 years from now, when they have absorbed part of uh, Siberia, where they, they could make a greater claim that, uh, and I Saying that, guess what? Jim Jim uh, sketched out uh, that's uh, that's what they're up, up to in uh, in Siberia. Say, oh, we've already had this presence. We're an Arctic nation, and it would roll back and say, look, I base it on longevity, which 
they're coming close to already making that statement on the fact of their of their manufactured islands in the South China Sea. See, they're there. They're facts. Uh, we've got uh, facts in the sea, not facts on the ground. Or we've created ground in, in in the sea, and then they come in with this uh, barrage of uh, diplomatic, legal, and uh, also uh, economic claims uh, after after putting that foothold out there. The the danger, Dan, is you you, you ask a question about the, the shootout with the Phil uh, with the Philippines. Um, the danger is that there is an incident between a U.S. ally uh, and and China that escalates definitely between Chinese forces and uh, um, American forces. But it's not just U.S. forces that are are moving in and patrolling the South China Sea. Britain's going to have uh, a small force operating in there. The Australians operate there. The Japanese are now sending small uh, task forces or adding a Japanese uh, destroyer to an American uh, operation in the South China Sea. And Singapore, even though it's small, is nothing to be... Uh, to be ignored, uh, first because of its position, but it's, as you can see the, the, in the reporting on strategy page, they have a very competent, if small, high-tech military. And we haven't even brought India into this, uh, Dan. I think you know, looking at the time on it, I, I'll, I'll be very quick about it, but I'll point out to the listeners uh, a, a column I wrote, I think it was in April of 2001, and I remember Dan Masterson's reaction to this. It was called China's Boisterous Borders. It really hasn't changed. China has got a lot of enemies all the way around it, and as long as it's got money to keep Buying off the elites, I called Cambodia a wholly owned subsidiary. Crooked Russians are part of what's allowing uh, the China to do what they're doing in uh, far Russia's far uh, far east. But as long as they've got that economic advantage, they're going to be able to uh, gain the footholds economically, diplomatically, and even territorially that uh, that they desire. The problem is with India, there is, there'll, there'll be real pushback. And the Indians are another example uh, of what Jim was getting at, of they've taken it and they're not going to take it anymore. And if India has more in common with Australia and Singapore than it does with China by a long shot, and the Indians know that, India has more in common with the United States and they've long known that they just didn't want to uh, 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 admit it. And we, there's also the problem too of the way the United States uh, was perceived as being pro pro Pakistan, and and one of the was it the uh, seventy one war. Uh, I'm doing this uh, off the top of my head. I think that's uh, uh, that's correct. But that's that's small, and compared to the problem of China developing an active alliance with the Pakistanis and that Ghadar port that it looks like a Chinese naval base on the Indian Ocean. That's another shot of a type built with concrete and, and steel 
but it's uh, uh, the Indians perceive it quite correctly as an encroachment on the Indian Ocean. Now, that's a heck of a lot of powerful enemies that China has riled. And I think I think Jim's I'm kind of still chuckling about Jim's discussion uh, discussion about Koreans and, and, and Japanese. They really do train together. We're kind of the the the, the balance the balancer between them. And they the South Koreans and the Japanese have fabulous weapons and their pilots know how to fly. And uh, they also have uh, missile missile defenses. Uh, all right. We're having this. Uh, dance about what kind of more advanced anti-missile missiles Japan is going to deploy, but they're going to deploy them. And you saw the little problem that some of the South Korean peaceniks had when the uh, THAAD was uh, emplaced, uh, just a THAAD battery in southern South Korea, but it, it, it really that adds something to a South Korean defense against <clears throat> excuse me, certain types of a North Korean missile attack. And, but what it does is it also integrates uh, the communication control and surveillance our, our, our architecture. And the United States, South Korea, and Japan in that northern area, going and even going on down to uh, Okinawa, we've got uh, an organization. Or, uh, the, it's not just the weapon systems, but they're organized to be able to focus not just on North Korea, but also, the, also China, and the Chinese are aware of that. Uh, that's something that ours works. Doesn't mean it can't be uh, spoofed, uh, but they would have to. The Chinese would have to be very, very good, and I don't think they're that good to spoof or get the jump on that kind of surveillance system. And I've left Taiwan out of it. The, the Taiwanese are surveilling China all the time, much to uh, uh, the Chinese Communist Party's uh, uh, dismay. Recall one of the very first incredible international reports about the Wuhan virus, Chinese Communist Party virus, COVID-19, whatever you want to call it. I, I like calling it Chinese Communist Party virus, was from Taiwan. And it was because of, of, of their uh, contacts and reporting uh, within China. So. The Wuhan virus, was that a first shot? No, there are some conspiracy uh, debaters that uh, suggest it was, but I'll tell you what, it certainly revealed something about about the way the Chinese Communist Party handles information. Yeah, and that's prob we're right there where we probably need to wrap it up. So um, that's probably a good place to end. Uh, we will talk to you gentlemen next time. All right. Bye. Four weeks. Bye. Bye, -bye. Yep. Bye guys. Take care.